This is Douglas Skimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by research analyst Greg Sumner. Greg began his career at Morgan Stanley, where he served in various roles before moving to Tiger Shark Management, working there as a research analyst for seven years. Greg joined Diamond Hill in 2015, covering producer durables for the firm. Greg joined the podcast early during the pandemic to discuss COVID-19 and the impact of his coverage universe. And on today's podcast, Greg and I will break down his recent industry perspectives piece available on our website, www.diamond-hill.com. His piece covers the 80-20 principle and how companies' efforts at self-improvement can lead to significant higher organic growth, margins, and free cash flow. We'll discuss some real-world examples and maybe even delve into the NBA a little bit. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Sumner. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. So glad that you could join today. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So let's start off with the basics. In your opening to your industry perspectives, you reference the 80-20 principle, which is sometimes referred to as the Pareto principle, which I hope I'm saying that right. Can you walk the audience through the principle and how it is used to further our understanding of a variety of different areas of life, including the 2007-2008 NBA season? The, the Pareto principle, and I think I'm saying it right also, um, but it's, it's named after an Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto, which is, which is a great name. But in, in the early 1900s, he was studying uh, wealth distribution and, and particularly land ownership in Italy. And he looked around and realized that about 80% of the land was owned by about 20% of the people. And he thought it was a mistake. He kept looking. He kept finding it everywhere um, throughout Italy and England. Um, apparently, he even noticed that in his garden about 20% of the pea, uh, pea plants were producing about 80% of his peas. Um, so he, he realized he was onto something um, and he wrote some books talking about the distribution of land and wealth. And, and you know, that, that idea kind of took off from there. You know, to be clear, you know, it's not exactly 80% and 20%. You know, these are not magic numbers, but, but the idea is that, you know, more often than not, uh, at least in a lot of things in life, a small percentage of the, the inputs uh, generate a large percentage of the outputs. Um, and sometimes it, it can be pretty close to 80-20. Um, and that's, that's why that 07, 08 NBA season is, is often cited as an example. Uh, I'm not sure who did it, but somebody looked in the top 20% of the scorers from that, from that year uh, scored 79.5% of all points scored in the league that year. So it's almost exactly an 80-20 relationship. Um, one, one thing that's kind of interesting is it, it even holds pretty good at the team level. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant was the leading scorer that year. And if you look at the Lakers that year, um, the top four on the Lakers, which admittedly is rounding up a little bit because I think they had 19 guys on the, on the roster, but um, the top four accounted for about 70% of their points. So it was a 70-20 relationship. Um, but, but these sorts of distributions can be found in, in lots of places. Uh, I think, you know, in, in academic circles, they're, they're generally called, you know, power law distributions. Um, but you see it in income and, and wealth distribution. You see it in the frequency of words and, you know, words used in most languages. 
Um, you see it in frequencies of names, population density, crime, all over. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of aware that, that these distributions are common, but I don't think we've all really internalized it um, maybe as much as we should. Um, you know, one lesson from, you know, this type of 80-20 distribution is that the average often isn't really that useful of a statistic. Um, you know, we talk all the time about average household income, medium household income, but that's, you know, definitely an 80-20 type relationship. So there's a few households earning way more than that and a whole lot of households earning less and, and not many are actually at that average level. Um, you know, also, and, and I think you need to be a little careful with, with some of this stuff, to be honest, but, you know, one potential lesson, and I wouldn't recommend this, but you can, you can probably get about 80% of the value out of a book by only reading about 20% of the pages. Um, but again, I, you know, I'm not recommending that, uh, but that is another lesson you, you could take from, from 80-20. You'd have to be very selective as to which 20 pages you read or 20% yeah. of the pages you read. You do, and that, and, and and even when you know companies apply it, it's it's a big part of the process is that beginning uh, sort of segmentation process of figuring out which is the which is the vital few, you know, the twenty percent that's giving you eighty percent of the value, and and what's the the rest that's that's not producing as much value. A perfect segue to the next question, so that now that we've got this this understanding of the eighty twenty principle. Let's talk about you know, how companies can use this principle to improve their bottom line and enhance their value. Specifically, you use SPX flow as a real world example as to how the 80-20 principle can be utilized in the management of a company. Can you run through you know, the original Diamond Hill thesis on SPX flow from 2015 and then how it's evolved over time? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I to me, like I said, with, with, with 80-20 in businesses, the most valuable lesson to learn is not everything you're doing is equally valuable. Um, not everything you're doing is creating you know, an equal amount of value for your customers. Um, only about 20% of what you're doing is really creating 80% of the value. So figure out what that 20% is, what that vital few is, and, and treat it differently. And I know that sounds painfully obvious, but you know, it, I think that doesn't happen as often as it should. Um, and so, you know, SPX flow applied this in what I would refer to as sort of a macro way, which is when you look at your business, um, in terms of your products, your customers, your distribution channel, and, and like I said, segment it in a very thoughtful way, in a way that most companies don't generally segment their operations and, and, and sort of allocate the costs in a very thoughtful way. And, and when you do that, you will find that, you know, a, about you know, 80% of your profits are coming from about 20% of these segments, you know, different products, different customers, different distribution channels, um, you know, however makes the most sense to look at it. Um, but once you've done that and you've identified those 20% that are the vital few that are, that are generating 80% of your profits, you need to treat them differently. Um, and that's, that's a very important step that's hard to do, but you need to put the vast majority of your resources into these areas, more R&D money, uh, more salespeople. Um, but you're also looking at the 80% that's only generating 20% of your profits. And, and there might be some areas there that you just sort of decide to milk you know, for cash, don't invest in, but just kind of let them run off. There might be a few areas you divest completely or walk away from completely. 
And, and this part is actually a, a lot harder than it sounds. Um, you know, managers have an incentive to grow revenue, right? They get paid based on how big the company is. So divesting businesses is, is hard for them. And, and it's, from a human nature standpoint, it's, you know, it's natural to try to want to fix the thing that's broken. Um, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So, you know, 80-20 says do the opposite of that. Don't, don't put all of your management attention towards the underperforming business. Put it towards the, the stuff that's doing well for you already. Um, and as far as our original SPX flow thesis, when, I, when we first bought the stock in, in I believe it was 2015, um, the, the original thesis had you know, sort of two pillars, right? One was, was that for the most part, you know, this, is, this was a pretty good, you know, fairly attractive industry and, and flow had a pretty good you know, position in it. And, and I actually wrote an industry perspective piece, I think maybe 2016 or, or sometime back then, about how Flow's position in the dairy market, um, you know, as part of their food and beverage business, was was pretty attractive, um, and it is. But you know, we're not we're not macro thematic, you know, sort of growth investors. So so that that attractiveness was really more of a prerequisite, right? I mean, you, you need to you want to invest in industries that have a reasonably good outlook, um, you know, because if you're a buggy wit manufacturer, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the classic example of a dying industry. If you're a if you're a buggy whip manufacturer, you can do all the 80-20 stuff and all the continuous improvement stuff you want, but you know you're still doomed, right? So um, that was a necessary part of the thesis. But the more important part of the thesis was that you know this company we thought had significant margin improvement potential. Um, you know, if you looked at their margins at the time, they were significantly under earning relative to what we thought they could do. Um, they were much lower than peers. All right. So, and I, I talked to customers. Um, there weren't any problems with the products. Uh, there was no problem with the technology, you know, nothing like that. But when we looked at the management team um, and sort of what their priorities were, what their strategy was, and, and, and just sort of talked to some industry contacts who knew them, you know, it, it kind of became clear over time that this company was uh, either, you know, mismanaged or, or at least undermanaged. And that was, you know, the driving force behind the low margins. And then this became an attractive idea back around 2015 when they had a CEO change. The old CEO went away. Uh, a new CEO came in um, who, had a, who had a good track record of, of successfully running their food and beverage business and, and improving the margins there. Um, so, you know, the thesis was basically just, you know, decent, you know, attractive business, margin improvement potential, and a new management team that could could unlock that potential, and that thesis actually never changed. You know, throughout the, you know, six seven years that we've owned it, um, that never changed. We we gained conviction in that thesis over time, um, as we they started talking about implementing eighty twenty. Um, you know, they did a lot of segmentation work in some of their analyst days. They they showed what the various segments were and what they're going to invest in and what they're going to milk for cash, and they divested businesses. And as they started to execute on this plan, our conviction grew, but the underlying thesis, you know, never really changed at all. So your paper has another uh, interesting but somewhat different example of this 80-20 principle, and, and specifically Toyota production systems utilize the innovative thoughts of Joseph Duran, I hope I'm saying that right as well, uh, to implement the 80-20 principle into the, the Toyota production system. 
So how did Toyota benefit from the implementation of the 80-20 principle? And, and was it different in any way from what we've learned about SPX flow? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I think 80-20 can be applied at a company in two ways. You know, one is sort of a macro way, the way SPX flow did looking at the businesses. And one would be sort of at a, a micro level, um, which is what, you know, the Toyota production system is sort of based on. Um, and, and for example, it, the 80-20 initially sort of got into the Toyota production system through, through quality control. Um, you know, the quality gu gurus, you know, the W. Edward Deming and, and, and Joseph Duran, I, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce that either, but um, they looked at the causes of defects in, in manufactured goods. And, and they realized that this was an 80-20 style distribution, that the, the vast majority of defects were being caused by a small minority of, of the errors in, in, in the production process. And you know you should attract you should attack those errors pretty aggressively. And Toyota, um, you know, learned this when when Duran went over there to, to lecture in the 1950s. And but I think they took they took that to the next level. Um, you know, they they would tour in the 50s. You know, GM and Ford plants in the U.S. And they saw that on the factory floor, there was you know this old school mass production style that that Ford and GM were using at the time. They realized the vast majority of value actually being created was only being created by a few people. There were there were a bunch of people standing around the factory floor doing nothing, or or not you know maybe not doing nothing, but not really truly adding value. And 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 they looked at what the workers were doing, even the ones that were adding value, and and a big chunk of what they were doing was was inefficient. Was was could have been done better. Um, there was lots of waste in the system. Uh, and, and the Japanese word for waste, and it's a big part of, of TPS, is muda. Um, there was there was tons and tons of, of muda in, in the Ford and GM plants. Um, inventory was a, a key area. You know, if you analyze inventory sitting around in a, in a factory or a warehouse, you know, maybe 20% of it is used a lot, but there's there's 80% that's generally speaking not used very much. It's it's muda, right? So um, I think a lot of the TPS system is, is based at its core on this observation that really only about 20% of what you're doing is, is truly valuable. Um, and in the, in the 80% that's not adding much value, there's a lot of muda. And let's, let's go after that muda. Let's, let's get rid of it. And, and I think one of the really, truly brilliant things they did is, is they realized that it's, it's the workers that are actually creating the value, that are actually on the front line, you know, doing the work, that know what's creating value and what's muda so let's empower them let's let's give them the opportunity to tell us you know what's good and, and what we can cut um because these are the guys that in the time it was guys you know guys and gals that, that know what the vital few uh processes are that create the, the true value um and this is key to tps and it's, it's called kaizen um which which i think translates literally into good change but it's 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 constant improvement, continuous improvement of small little changes that are being suggested by the frontline workers and, and being slowly incorporated into the process, but builds and compounds over time into to massive improvement uh, over a longer period of time. And, and the benefits to, to Toyota from TPS were, you know, just massive. I mean, if you think about Toyota in the 50s, you know, they were an also ran, you know, 
in the in the auto industry, and, and by 2007, they were you know the biggest auto company in the world. Um, so it was just an incredible uh, you know transformation there, and they credit you know TPS for it. So it was it was vitally important for them. Based on what I've read in your piece, it sounds like American companies were a bit more hesitant to consider the benefits of the 80-20 principle, while foreign companies like Toyota, which you were just talking about, were much more open to the concept. Why do you, why do you think that is? You know, is it a cultural thing? Is it something to do with just the differences in society? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do think there is some of that. Um, but I think uh, more important is just, you know, change is hard, you know, it's hard to change. And, and in that period in, in the fifties to the seventies, you know, as, as Toyota was, you know, building the system and, and the U S companies were largely ignoring it. Um, you know, the U S was the dominant industrial player and had been doing things their way for a long time. And it had worked out very well for them thus far. So, you know, change is going to be pretty, pretty darn close to impossible at that point. Whereas Japan you know, having been decimated by World War II and not having the scale um, to compete with the U.S. in the auto industry, if they just simply use the same system the U.S. was using, they had to come up with a new way, you know. So, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say, and, and they had to do it. So I think I think that was a big part of it. Um, and and this, this is a huge change when you implement these sort of TPS style systems, and it requires a big cultural change at, at the company level. Um, and that's, you know, that's very, very hard and very scary. You know, this, this system is a lot less hierarchical than the traditional U.S. system, um, which, you know, foremen and supervisors, you know, they're going to push back against, right? Um, it also, you need to have real, real trust between the employees and, and the management team. Um, you know, you are encouraging employees to point out mistakes and problems. And, and, you know, sometimes in, in cultures, there can be uh, fear of doing that for fear of being punished. Uh, you're, you're, you're getting these employees to come up with ways to do their job more efficiently. Um, so they have to trust that you're not going to then, you know, once they're much more efficient, you know, fire 20% of them because you can do the job with fewer people. So there's, there's a level of trust that needs to be there that takes a long time to build up. Um, but I, I think really the biggest issue was was just that change is hard. Um, you know, Toyota believes that there are sort of important cultural differences between Japan and and the U.S. Um, and and some you know when they opened their factories here, they were slow to roll out some parts of the Toyota production system um, in the U.S. because they believed the cultural differences would would make it. Uh, too difficult and it wouldn't be well received. But I, I think the bigger issue is really just that, that change is hard and you need an incentive to do it that just wasn't there in the U.S. until, you know, the oil crisis hit in the you know, 70s and then, and then the 80s and, and beyond. Another company that you mentioned in your industry perspectives piece is Danaher Corporation. Uh, you know, how did Danaher implement the benefits of 8020 and, and what were the results? So, so Danaher is an interesting story. Um, you know, they, they were an industrial company. Um, they, you know, had a factory in the U S that was sort of struggling a little bit. Uh, the manager there went to a lecture held by two of the, of the architects of TPS and basically convinced them to come over and work for him as consultants to help improve the factory. 
and implement TPS there. And it was, it was a wild success. Um, Danaher's corporate office realized, you know, that, that how, how massively you know, successful this was at improving the results at this factory. And, and the thing that Danaher did, unlike Toyota, sort of their, their big innovation, if you will, is they realized that, you know, if this type of improvement is, is possible, they could make, you know, they could make a lot of money if they go out and acquire other companies that are, you know, reasonably good businesses, but apply these, this, these tools, apply this system to improve them after they acquired them. Um, and that's what they did. They went out and bought like 10 companies a year and applied, you know, the Danaher business system, which is, you know, just the evolution of the Toyota system um, to improve these companies. And the results were just shockingly good. Um, you know, tremendous revenue growth, consistent margin expansion as, as they implemented the process. And the stock did amazingly well. Um, you know, for the first 10 years or so, they, they started implementing this in the late 80s. So from 1990 to about 2000, uh, Danaher stock uh, had a, like a 26% Kager uh, versus about 10% for the market. And, and, you know, just, you know, sort of life-changing outperformance. And, and it, it, the outperformance has continued from there. It slowed a bit. You know, as you know, as they got bigger, it, it got harder to move the needle. But you know, even over the last ten-year period, Danaher's up about eighteen percent versus about thirteen percent Kager for for the market. So still, just consistent um, and, and really significant outperformance, driven by uh, you know applying the Danaher business system to acquired companies. Um, interestingly, um, we own a company called Colfax currently which is sort of a direct descendant of, of Danaher. The, the Rails brothers who founded Danaher um, started Colfax. Um, current CEO is a former Danaher employer, employee. And, and they have the Colfax business system, which is a direct descendant of the Danaher business system. And they're actually in the process of breaking up into two companies. One's going to be industrial focused and one's going to be med tech focused. But I, I think they have a tremendous opportunity to apply their business system um, and sort of use the Danaher model uh, to, to outperform um, for you know, a long time in the future. Well, Greg, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day and joining the podcast for an interesting discussion. Really fascinating stuff about not only the business implementation of the 80-20 principle, but also some information on MBA scoring trends. Yeah, yeah no, no problem. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.